Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 48. I'm your host, Dill, and today we have a very enlightening conversation with Brendan B. Brown of the band Wheatus. Now, most of us know Wheatus for their 2000 hit Teenage Dirtbag and their cover of Erasure's A Little Respect that were MTV staples. But some 19 years later, Wheatus are still at it and never really left it and have become a pretty well-oiled DIY machine that continues to tour the U.S. and abroad regularly. I was able to sit down with Brendan while Wheatus toured with Soul Coffin's Mike Dowdy and our conversation about their experience within the major label system, the collapse of the music industry, art theft, and much, much more went a little something like this. Well, let's, uh, let's dig into a little bit of your, your beginnings, like how the band came to be. Um, what I found online was around 1995, is that when things started to percolate in what yeah. be- eventually became Weedus? Around the end of my college years, it's 94, 95, I was writing guitar pieces that were, that I was experimenting with my own vocal on. Prior to that, I was only in sort of hardcore bands that played CBGBs that had, where I was a guitarist, mm-hmm. strictly. And for a very long time, for most of that early period, I kept that stuff to myself and didn't show it to anybody. So 90, 94, 95, 96, I started to show people. And it was it was really intensive work. I would get home from my printer repair job and I would sit with the four track and the drum machine and a bass and my guitar and a microphone sort of concocting versions of songs in their like sketch entirety all all parts in other words all arrangement parts um, until two o'clock in the morning you know I was working eight hours a day on my music and eight hours a day in, in job world right um, and then I would put the tape, mixnet tape down on my little four track and the next morning I'd put it in the cassette player of my car and drive to work singing different melodies and things. Um, and I had a little dictaphone that I would sit on the passenger seat and sing. So there are dictaphone recordings of me singing along with these with alternate versions and stuff cool. that, that are buried somewhere. Um, and I did that for years. I did that from 95, 96, part of 97. And all the while I was in and out of other bands, I was in a band called Hope Factory, I was in a band called Moxie. Uh, during that period, Hope Factory jumped on the road with uh, Joan Jett and toured the East Coast. Um, uh, that was my first sort of American road experience, was 96. Um, what did you take away from that? Like, What was your first impression? Uh, don't expect the crowd to love you. You know the real basic stuff of put on a good show and smile, even if you get, even if there's four people in the front row giving you the finger. You know, um, Jones fans were really nice to us. It was kind of, they're kind of like a, a biker crowd, so to speak, and um, biker girls, and they were like, cool, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we were really their cup of tea, and that's a, and that's a valuable lesson early on. Playing for a crowd that's not into you. So yeah, there's something else, man. <laughs> were, were you guys a good match in terms of musically, Joan Jett and well, we were both. At the time? We were both. We were both sort of heavy, okay. um, heavy loud rock. But the Hope Factory thing was like it was another songwriter, a songwriter called Ali uh, Ali Namvar, and he was he's still a good friend of mine. We he was the first. That was the first time anybody ever told me to change my sound on the guitar, play this pickup. Don't play it there on the neck, play it here. So as I took instruction from him on what he wanted for his music, it was another valuable lesson of like, 
you're not there for your own style you're there to service the song because mm -hmm. the song is the thing that people that comes across to people not your stupid guitar technique you know um, so uh, getting getting a he taught me to have this sort of wider view of what the song needs and um, worked with him for a while and, and Hope Factory was a, a sort of a heavy shoegaze band influenced by you know Stone Roses and um, and uh, Ned's Atomic Dustbin and right. uh, sort of the Brit pop stuff. And uh, partway through that, I got involved in a project recording for another band uh, called Mr. Jones. And this was a, a writing assignment, effectively. I was, um, was about like early 97, late 96. Spent about those nine months on either side of that year um, driving into Manhattan at night uh, after work recording and writing until two o'clock in the morning and coming back to you know now I still had my demo process going on the weedest stuff wasn't really showing anybody any of that stuff but a lot of the stuff that I was stalled on with the weedest material I was bringing into that session to flush out as another band and that was really interesting because I was working with an engineer called Todd Childress who was really talented and he was at the desk and it was just he, he and I for most of the nights you know and a couple of other guys playing drums and bass um, and you know we I didn't know what I was doing but I kind of found out mm -hmm. you know eventually um, but at the end of that project uh, there was a record deal that I was kind of cut out of and um, got that first taste of really getting screwed around financially who screwed you bandmates or was it I think that it was I think that what was going on was there was no steered. there wasn't any sort of like plot to screw anybody but the way that things were in the music industry in the 90s was there were managers who would take a project to a label in the name of an artist without really flushing out who had worked on the record mm -hmm. it was just kind of like strike while the iron's hot get the deal signed Figure out the details out later. later, right? And um, I was in—I was one of those details that got missed. I happened to be primary songwriter on this material, so it was really tough to assert myself after the after the fact, after the toothpaste was out of the tube on the record deal that I wasn't involved in. Did you get eliminated from the publishing? No, okay. I fought my battle on that and asserted that those rights. I got a little advance from from those guys who got a tremendous, got a big advance, and I pulled out of it because I didn't want to be involved in that thing anymore. And I, I through that process, had come to a place where I was much more confident with my own singing mm -hmm. and being the voice of my own songs, and had saved up thirty something tracks with vocals and full arrangement that I had done during that period in uh, in private right um, and uh, and began recording those things those songs which became album one for Wheatus in mid 97 98 okay I was curious because just reading some of the stuff online it leaves out the details but at what at some point you hired an entertainment lawyer Ray uh, yeah Ayala. we had yeah Ray was our manager at the time. Okay. Um, just when you read that, you th you're thinking like it's a bunch of kids out there, you know, making demos. But you're already kind of been in and out. By the time I met Ray, I had been on and off yeah, the road with Joan Jett. I had been 
played a ton of shows at CB's. I had done done East Coast touring. I had been in and out of the studio and wrote and recorded a record for that went on A and M Records and came out released on A and M Records. So I had been through the mill a few times when I when I even bumped into Ray, who was a friend of my friend from high school, uh, who was a paralegal at his firm. Okay, and um, he was into music and he. Um, pursued us to, to represent the band and it seemed like a kind of perfect fit at the time Get, you know it's like a lawyer we know mm -hmm. who's kind of our, closer to our age than closer to the other side of the equation I, I, had, I had lost trust in older people in this <laughs> in the, through the process quite quite profoundly so it was like um, was ready to partner up with somebody on, on the legal front for, for things and and uh, it, it worked out. We got a record deal with Sony after playing a bunch of showcases. Um, Ray wasn't involved in the showcases that we did, so we started playing. We were playing the Mercury Lounge and the Luna Lounge back and forth, those two clubs uh, around the corner from each other just on, on Halston. Um, it's like we were doing like once every two and a half months, two, three months, you know, four times a year, maybe three times a year. Um, and we always made sure that there was a party afterwards that everyone could go to. Um, to keep part. keep it <laughs> keep it family like keep, yeah, you know yeah. keep it fun. And we wanted the weirdest show to be a night out that people could like count on. You know, New York City can be a little bit like, what am I doing tonight? I don't know, a last minute thing. Like, and you wind up at some shitty thing, or you wind up at some great thing. You know, um, so we tried to plan evenings for everybody, okay. and um, it kind of worked. By the time early 99 late 98 rolled around we had uh, Mercury Lounge shows where there was a line around the block people we didn't know and, yeah. and at this point too you've got a you know you've got a, an album's worth of songs that are you are you sending had, those to had, by that time I had four albums worth of songs and are you but are you pursuing you know the Sony's and the all the major labels no nope, we were given we were giving the record away okay. we were giving a four track or a four-song demo CD with Teenage Dirtbag and a couple of other tunes on it. We were giving it away at shows as a like souvenir of the show. Mm -hmm. We weren't selling it. And in '98, I took a job working for a company called ASI in Midtown, up in up in Times Square, and they were building virtual private networks for Wall Street banks. And the two guys who worked for that company were these like really like fringe hippie programmer guys who um, were super smart and you know when, when they found out I was in a band they were like you know man you gotta you gotta get your website together you gotta get you gotta make sure that like like to, like you, a CD is software you know that right? right like that's copyable and they explained like the, the, the pending dilemma of the music industry to me pretty clearly from a technical standpoint um so I had kind of had that information going into a record deal and was real cagey about talking to label people because I was like, I don't know, you guys are, it's kind of like the word on the street is you're not going to be able to sell this shit anymore, you know, like, why would I give it to you, you know? So um, I did, was there was only the beginnings of that sort of idea that right. music... That's hard to grasp, too. It, it, at not, the time, music was still reality. physical. Yeah, 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 it wasn't reality. And it was just this, it was this notion that these computer guys were saying, uh-uh, you know, ten yeah. years from now, no CDs. <laughs> like, um, so, uh, 
Were there any other labels at the time? Yeah, there was a few you know, bouncing get a, around. Get a couple dinners out of it. Yeah, no, I didn't. I I didn't let anybody take me to dinner. I had been through that. I'd already <laughs> oh, done, you that. done that. Okay. Yeah, I had done the whole like, oh, got schmoozed by label guy, got <laughs> schmoozed by manager. You know, like I was a real cynic by the time we okay. were doing this. Um, in terms of the business, sure. I had had a management deal with Kenny Laguna that, that I got out in and out of. That was a Joan Jett thing. Um, so there was a, quite a bit of experience still already, you know, um, enough to know that, that I wanted to stay away from certain motifs. Right. Well, along comes a guy named Kevin Patrick, who is the, the, the weirdo dark horse guy at Columbia Records who doesn't talk to anybody at the label, has a corner office that only has vinyl in it, and refu- like doesn't want to sign anybody. And we kind of hit it off. He was as much of a cynic as I was. He was tired of seeing bands he signed get flushed out of the system the way that... So he took the Teenage Dirtbag demo CD that we could give it. He took one at the counter and he gave it to Donnie Einer the next day and played it. And Donnie Einer said, sign this band. Nice. So it was a real straight, you know, end run right. through that whole garbage mess. And um, he, he, he said, look, I don't want to take you out to dinner. I just want to sit down with you for a second and tell you what's going on. Uh, and I said, tell me over the phone. <laughs> and he, he's like, well, Donnie Einer wants to sign your band. And, uh, you know, you don't get a label president interested in something that often. I wouldn't be on the phone with you if I didn't think it was serious. You know, I don't care about this shit, <laughs> you know, to see if it works. And... Um, and so in, in, uh, the, by the su- late summer of 99, we knew that we were with Columbia Records already. We signed a deal memo after a little bit of sort of like tinkering with, I, I kept saying, let me re-record the album, let me finish it. And he was like, I want to put the demo out. Donnie likes the demo. And I was like, let me finish it. And there was a little bit of arguing back and forth. So in this December of 99, we signed a deal memo with Columbia Records and we were off the market. And then we, we, I didn't quit my job yet because the final version of the contract hadn't been signed and that didn't that didn't get executed until end of February 2000 okay and what what eventually happened to the album did you go back and tinker with it did you yep re-record it, as, it? Soon, as soon as we got the full version of the Sony recording agreement executed um we asked them for $50,000 that they gave to us, and I immediately went to Guitar Center and bought the kind of equipment that I had wanted to work okay. the record with what that could, I couldn't afford. And we set it all up in my mother's house in probably sometime around March 1st of 2000. Such a cynic still, with a record label and in advance, I kept my day job. So it was taking the train into New York City, working my day job, turning right back around to Northport, recording all night, doing it again. There was like three and a half weeks of that. We delivered the album at the end of March. Um, When they accepted the record and decided to spend money to have it mixed and committed to that, that's when I quit my day job. It was probably April 1st of 2000. And a few days later, we drove down to Nashville, Tennessee to mix the record with a guy named Dave Thoner, who had done 
I picked him out of a list of mixing engineers because one of his credits was for those about to rock by ACDC. <laughs> now, did you have a conversation with him prior to, you know, did you talk? No, he, had, he had done a spec mix of Teenage Dirtbag okay. that we got back from him, and he smashed it out of the park. <laughs> it was so good. And I was just like, okay, this is it, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, Kevin didn't even say anything in his office. He just gave me this look, like, like, and the look kind of said, "You're fucked now, kid." Like, man, you. I'm surprised. It sounded like he was one of the guys who'd be like, "All right." You're no, thinking, he was never like that. Thinking outside the to box. To his credit, to his credit, Kevin Patrick always said to us, he always gave me the downside of what was about to happen. He's like, all right, well, this is obviously a hit, so you're fucked. You know, you're going to have to hit the road now. You're going to have to get bronchitis and play a show on television. You're going to have to do, a, a, you know, the dumbest radio gimmick shit you've ever seen. You're going you're gonna, to, skin's going to crawl with the stuff that they're going to put you through. Like, and, and he kind of, you know, he was, right. he Give hit us with the real shit, you know. So we were... I think that we may have had a unique circumstance in that regard at a major label where we had a single, one single advocate giving us the skinny. And, you know, he, he they, broke, they broke the mold after they made him. You know, there's nobody else like that at, right, at major labels. They all just blow sunshine up your ass, you know? Yeah. So when did the, when did the album hit the streets? Uh, Teenage Dirtbag's single hit the streets in July of 2000. And did it hit the ground running yes it did it um it popped into the alternative rock chart at number seven in america um it got a lot of attention and in a lot of other places this was the point at which i began to uh not be able to keep an eye on who was servicing it because a major label has a college radio department in des moines and a college radio department in san diego and they all and they call you up like they know you, but you've never talked to these people, and they're servicing your music to everybody, and they're doing this legwork for you. Um, and you hope that the song itself has given, you know, its own best intentions to whoever's delivering, but you can't guarantee that. Sometimes they get it wrong, and sometimes they think something of you. They get the wrong idea about what you're trying to say in your music or about who you are, and you... F find yourself like kind of in awkward situations you know? there's a lot of like but how so are they are you saying like someone's going to interpret it and kind of steer it into the wrong genre so so if so if any of these guys had had some bad feedback or they faced resistance in the market that they were trying to push it they would come back to me and say they liked the song but when they saw the video you were playing an acoustic guitar they thought that was weird why don't we get you with like a gibson les paul and put on some leather pants and a pirate shirt and the whole and it's like to them that's not that's like that's just what you need to do to get it, you yeah. know. And they probably get yeses from ninety nine out of hundred. Yeah, they artists. probably do. Yeah, sure. But like, I'd be damned if I'm wearing a pirate. <laughs> I'll fucking, you know, I'll jump off the Empire State Building before I wear a pirate shirt, you know. So it was like, it was like that. It was like, a, and then that friction began, and we were, and we were then at that point out of Kevin's true hands and right. into the hands of the of the multinational Sony Corporation. Which was quite a different experience. And then, you know, you just kind of, like, hope for the best and, you know, suffer the worst of it. And were all of Kevin's, you know, was it miserable for you to do whatever radio yeah, promotions? Yeah, he, he, he was right. You know, there was stuff out even there. Even the first time around? Was there was like, stuff out there that was like, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming. It's like crazy uh, schemes where 
radio stations in the same market were competing and they would play a trick on you to see if they could get an acoustic version uh, for their station and then when you would come up and do the the real version for the market that liked you they would play the acoustic version as if you were in town that day at their like it's live and oh look they came here first no 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 you know and you found yourself this sort of like you were like this lump of, of currency right that they were using to bolster or, or realign their own relationships it was kind of weird mm-hmm. um yeah at what point do you do a video for that? We did the video very early on. The video was like like June or something. Like They, they threw money down for a video very quickly on that song because they paired it up with that movie. movie. Mina Savari and, and Jason Biggs at the time were really big uh, teen stars, like you know, college movie stars. Right. So, um, Now, economically, was there any savings to that? Did they partner up with yes, the they movie? Did. They, so yes, the they movie did. The movie kind of took a chunk. Indeed, they did. Guys. Columbia TriStar paid for half of the video, I believe. And that was one of the reasons that Sony was so excited excited about it. Um, at the time, you know, this wasn't stuff that I was making any kind of decision about. I wasn't saying, yeah, that's great. They were saying, look, we got half of your video costs underwritten. That's right off of your budget, right? And I was like, wow, how'd you do that? Columbia TriStar wants the song in the movie and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, okay. And then they were like, and it's a helicopter fly-in shot of the World Trade Center. You know, and I was like, yeah, okay, the New York City band, great, we've done, this is it, like, it doesn't get any better, you know. Um, it was like, I felt like it was like, you know, the movie Working Girl, yeah. you know, it was kind of like that, like, yeah. we, got, we got this spot, you know, this coveted spot, and I still like the beginning of that movie that for that reason, um, but uh, yeah, it was kind of, just kind of, it was snowballing at that point, point. and before we knew it, we were on the road in, in August and September, and it was hitting in some places and it was missing in others and in in general the first week of sales in I think September uh, they called us up and they said we're a little disappointed it did failed to break the 20,000 unit psychological barrier I said well what was it they were like 19.6 and I said to them what what a couple calls I said what about LimeWire and Napster you guys like is that what's it doing there and they were like what's that yeah oh my god and that was the point at which I was like oh the guys at ASI were right man here we go you know this is like we're trapped in an old model Um, at what point you learned that you guys are kind of blowing up overseas also uh, we toured all the way through Uh, it was like we started on a high and touring went down 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 until the end of November 2000 we were playing Lawrence Kansas in front of two people really yeah even with the hit well a hit is only a thing that goes on the radio for a while and then goes away and if you don't connect the promoter for the show with the guy booking it let them know it's got to be an underage show let them know that whole thing if if those dots are not all connected you can't play in front of people and no club wants to do an underage show because they're not selling alcohol so um, you know uh, it, was, it was at the point at which we it was the end of November, around Thanksgiving of 2000. We were kind of beat up and all had bronchitis, and we were in San Francisco. And Kevin Patrick called me back after not having returned calls for a few weeks and said, "You have to go to Australia." And I said, "Go fuck yourself. I'm really sick. I'm going to the hospital. I'm going home. You know, for Christmas." And he's like, "No, no, you don't understand. You're quadruple platinum in Australia." And I was like. 
fuck? <laughs> you know, like just just from from two people in Lawrence, Kansas, to television prime time in Australia, like the next day. Um, so I took the first Xanax I ever took in my life. Got on a plane and on the tar- fell asleep on the tarmac in San Francisco. Woke up on the tarmac in oh, that's perfect in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then we uh, had our little Australian thing. We went down there for for some studio time. Uh, at Jimmy Barnes's place, remember Jimmy yeah, Barnes? Totally, totally. Um, to to record what was second, what was going to be the second album, and uh, the label called us up and they were like, "You're you're hitting in England. You got to stop recording and go to England." And when we got to England, uh, we were all over the place on television. It was really nuts we were being invited to play for the Prince of England at the Prince's Trust Party in the Park we were booked for all the festivals and that was four months after the Lawrence Kansas show in front of two people wow um, what was in, in Australia so 2000 in 2000 you were the second highest single in Australia right. do you remember what number one was um, like Whitney Houston or something odd like that uh, no I remember I remember that that happened in England that it was that no. might be that might okay. be a, uh, a confusion there. At, w- in England, we came. Their, their teenage Dirtbag came in at number two, and it was one of the highest selling number twos of all time because it was like it was a really strong week for record sales. And the f- the song that beat us out was a song called "Hole Again" by Atomic Kit band called a girl, oh, a girl group called Atomic, think of Atomic Kit. It's a great song. That's funny. It's a beautiful song. It's very sort of Motown soulful. It's okay. really nice tune. Um, but uh, yeah, it was that. But that that we weren't. You know, I remember being asked, "What do you think of your peers in the top five? And I was like, "There are no douchebag bands from Long Island in the top five. <laughs> like there, there, there are no knuckleheads from Northport in the top ten either. So you know, we're we're kind of like we're doing our own thing. We made our record in my mom's basement. I don't know what we're doing here. You know, that was good. So when does talk start about album number two? Well, album number two was written and was being recorded in Australia when we got pulled out of there and sent sent to. to well, how long would you have stayed in Australia? Recording? I would have stayed in there until we finished. Yeah, I was. My intention was to stay there until it was done. But around, we got pulled out of Australia around March or so. And I'm sorry, coming off of you know a a, a decent hit, <clears throat> you have a little clout with the record company. I would figure. So are you getting what you want in terms of going into album number two? So they gave us, they gave, they allocated a recording fund, and they were cool with us spending it in Australia. But we had a little problem. Somebody commissioned the recording fund, which is technically okay, but ethically evil. Because if the album isn't finished yet, you've just commissioned an advance from a band that has to deliver something that hasn't delivered it yet, and you don't know how much it's going to cost. So we wound up in a lawsuit after that. And that lasted, that lasted the better part of two and a half years. Um, and we won the lawsuit. We got out of that bad relationship. Um, and we moved on. Eventually the, the manager for Iron Maiden stepped up and helped us with things. Bruce Dickinson came down to sing on Wannabe Gangster in August of 2001 and then the next month 9-11 happened 
And so that summer, coming off of Lawrence, Kansas, and, and being in England and being sort of TV famous for the first time ever, was really intense. We didn't, we didn't, we never came home. We were in England the whole summer. We recorded at Abbey Road in the Beatles' room for the for the re-record of "Wanna Be Gangster," where Bruce sang on it. We went home for a couple of days. I came back to England on September 9th to mix the new single with Bruce on it and mixed it on September 10th September 11th morning of we're winding down we're just doing a final listen these printing versions and we're just finished up I'm on the phone with the cab company and he turns on the TV and the World Trade Center is, has a plane just drove through it so that really screwed everything up for us on a on a financial tip on an emotional tip on like a whole how the like the ecosystem of a brand new band having their first like little little taste of success is extremely fragile throw in some like new world order event like that and man the ripples were like holy shit how do we ride this and we had hundred tour dates set up you know like we had all this stuff and we had to cancel half of them and re- reorder the whole thing and you know it's the, the the financially we were like in way over our heads as it was mm-hmm. so the the debt amassed from reordering the whole thing was incredible and hundreds of thousands of dollars in the red uh, not for the label they weren't there was no tour support we were talking about us now right you know so um we had the opportunity to cancel the dates. Every other American band canceled their international tour dates in the fall of 2001. And we stuck to them. And we were the only American band that came over to do a tour that year after the attack. So our tickets did really well. And we had some wonderful theater shows. And I think we opted, at that point, even early on, instead of doing nine or ten big shows, we did 50 small ones. Mm-hmm. And we are still the band that goes over there for 40, 50 dates. We don't do a small tour. We do a long one. So we still have that little niche where we go over there and do a ton of shows. And I love it. Because that's how you kind of get good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at what point does, um, you know, you have a quote on your bio that says that there's an important exec that lost his cool and threatened to drop you and you took him, <laughs> took him up on it. When, yeah. did, when does this happen? It was, it was, um, it was, uh, was the summer of 2003. Okay. So a couple years later. 2002, we got back to New York and recorded the rest of our first, our second album, finished it, um, delivered it to Sony and they didn't like it. I still think it's the best work we were capable of at the time, but they hated it. So we went in for a meeting with now at this point when we, because we had recouped and been successful overseas, when we went to Sony, the international team came to meet with us now. It wasn't just Kevin Patrick anymore or whatever. So, uh, so they sat us down and they began to tell us about what they're not going to do. We're not going to do a video. We're not going to pay for any TV performances. We're not going to, um, no tour support we're not going to uh, I didn't want any tour support anyway but that was besides the point point. and the kicker was 
we're not going to release the album in America. Which why didn't you want tour support? Because you're in debt to them. If you're okay, taking so you tour support, they can tell you what, where to be, better. what to do. Yeah, I didn't. I got real sick of that. We had tour support in the fall of 2000, and I got. They just run you ragged. Yeah, yeah. You know, they tell you what to do. So, um, so we stopped taking tour support at that. I had long since stopped taking tour support at that time. And um, when they said, "You're, we're not putting the record out in the states," I realized that that triggered something with our publishing deal with my publishing deal and that meant that we didn't get our second advance which I had relied on to salary everybody so that they didn't have to have a day job when they were in the band so that kind of threatened the whole that was it and I you know he's I the president of the label at the time looked at me and said you know well you've been quiet during this conversation Brendan what do you think and I said I, if you are not going to put our records out anymore. I think I should probably go back and get my day job. And I wasn't being a smartass. Yeah, I was yeah. just really legit worried about how I was going to pay for my phone bill. You know, <laughs> like that was it. So um, he kind of blew his stack at me. I think that they were trying to get us, in retrospect, they were probably trying to get us to make them a third album without... Like, they were going to have rejected the second one, get us to make them a third, and then have stack up the catalog, have more material from us. Right. Um, but I, uh, I, I responded the way I did, and he got pissed, and he said, well, if you feel that way, you can take your damn record, and you can get the hell out of here. <laughs> and that was it. They dropped us. Holy shit. And we, got, we dodged a huge bullet, because the next year, Sony merged with BMG. And every single artist from our generation, from our time period, who was signed around the millennium, disappeared. They got shelved. They got well. They didn't get dropped necessarily. The worst thing to have happen at that time, right before iTunes came out, by the way, was to be kept on the label, right, and not promoted. To not be a free agent during the changing of the guard was the kiss of death. And a lot of those bands died because because of that. So we we somehow tumbled out right when the getting was good. So, like you mentioned, Napster and iTunes were both around 99, 2000, 2001. iTunes, yeah. I think once they take hold, it is probably 2003. I think it's 2004 was when iTunes, really, and then 2005 was YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, are, at, at this point, when you're getting freed up, is this something you, you, you want? At that point, I was very much... In fact, and, regretting having signed a record deal at all. Yeah, and you see the writing on the wall. You said the writing on the wall years ago, but it's, it's coming to fruition. Are you are you kind of looking to that to harness? Or no, I was much more worried. I was I didn't have a grand business plan. I was much more concerned about like the when you're poor, it's hard to see the forest. You know, you're kind of like just like oh shit, man, that bill is due. It's a month past due already. Like. You're just worried about maybe I should get a job in a deli and just like catch up on some cash and get and get that shit paid, um, and that's how I was thinking small when I said that. Mm-hmm. And we, even though that whole conversation about the digital streaming was in the back of my head and was was a, a sort of a, a background concern, um, I didn't know how it was going to shake out, and nobody did. Like you know, I wasn't like pressing like that. I was just like, get me the hell out of here. And when you have a hit like Teenage Dirtbag, it's it's obviously going to get licensed. It's going to be on movie trailers and, and stuff like that. But do you, having been through it, do, does it happen where it's 
at the time it's out, it's big, it's big, it's big, and then it cools down. Yeah, and it then took it a long time. Back again, yeah. and it was a dip through 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, and then 2009, 2010 started to get licensed again. It was a long time. It was a long time. And during that whole period, we would, I was booking weird tours with like, you know, carny guys in England trying to play universities and stuff, trying to stay out there for a month, barely affording a tour bus, putting $100,000 on a credit card, and then paying it off over the next 18 months or whatever it was. Um, keeping everybody paid on time was like the most important thing because personnel-wise, you can't have a morale problem on the road. It's right. just not, not a thing. So I uh, prioritized paying everybody else and not myself. Right. And... Um, and got to a point where all of a sudden it was 2008 and we had done a tour every year. And it was starting to see signs of like, even though it's the financial crisis, King's College of Science wants you to come and play the commencement ball for 6,000 pounds. The exchange rate was $2, right. you know? So I was like, yeah, we can do that. That's an anchor date for a tour, build a budget on that. And then call the Carney guy and see if he can get me, you know, 20 pubs right. off the back of it for a thousand pounds a night. Boom. So at this point, this is where it's your DIY is starting. Oh, we had DIY was see, the, know, the thing was it was on on the touring level. It was always DIY. Little bit of tour support in autumn of 2000. Long enough to know that that was a mistake. And then took it back at the end of that little period and never went on tour support again. So it was 100% on us. And from, from, from 2001 forward was all my financial misstep or, or you know, success. Do you have anybody helping you, advising you? or My you sister know, was the tour manager the for me. No, no. We didn't have a manager after that. Yeah, I saw, yeah, you had no... Yeah, unsigned and unmanaged for the last eight years, and that was probably now it's by nine, nine yeah. to ten at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had um, for for we had a tour manager named Rob Hollingsworth who came on as a manager for our third record when we put it out, um, and he's a good guy with good intentions, but we just didn't work out on the on the. I thought. I was telling him, don't spend money, let's not spend money on CDs. And he was kind of old school and convinced, you have to spend money on CDs, you have to have product in stores. And I was like, what stores? And he was like, <laughs> you know, we're having this, like, argument. Um, and, uh, he, you know, we're still friends, he's a good dude, but, but it just didn't work out. But that, that one little window in 2005, we had, a, we had management for one record. Um, it's funny, and your, your Facebook interests say, your interests are the collapse of the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> and then it also, your bio there, it goes in to say that you guys survived lawsuits, lineup changes, interstate art heist investigations. Yes. What was that? Uh, my friend Malcolm Emmerich, who was an anarchist graffiti artist guy, designed our logo for me. I uh, described what I wanted, and he did this beautiful oil painting. And then he did an... Uh, a sort of like companion oil painting of just the logo so he had this like f the black frog we call it it's like this oil painting on wood and then the logo from from the from the painting and both canvases were given to sony for high resolution photography to be put on album one long story short they didn't use that art for album one because they hated it but i never got the paintings back 
and Sony was insisting that they sent them to our manager and our manager was insisting he never received them and in 2009 our message board lit up with is this real and there was a link to an eBay auction oh, for both holy crap. original art pieces of our first record was it stateside or was it, <laughs> it was stateside located in, in Venice California so I called the police, and long, long chain through, I got to a, a detective Harusik in Venice, in California, Los Angeles, and he was an art detective because in Los Angeles, art theft right. is a thing. So I gave him the details. You still recording? Yeah. I gave him the details of of what this art was. He said, "Can you prove to me that you paid for it?" And I said, "Yeah, I can do that." And I got in touch with Malcolm Emmerich and. Um, was able to uh, prove that we paid Malcolm to do it. And at that, I got back on the phone with the detective, and, and he said, um, I said, what do we do here? And he goes, you know what? I'm going to take a ride down there and knock on the door. I have probable cause. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. So 24 hours, I got two FedEx packages with my original album art. Um. <laughs> Moving along that same line of uh, thought with the interstate art heist, you also had, it says betrayals intellectual property theft. Is that part of the intellectual property theft? Yeah. Your logo? Yeah. Yeah, there was a bit of intellectual property property theft in the 90s, too. Um, physical violence? Yeah. I mean, is that just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or is that just the, 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 the no, politics no, of being in a we, band? When we first hit the road, it was like a little bit more of a tough guy thing I guess and um, you know I was in more fist fights when I, by the time I was 8 or 9 than I could count so I don't like I have a hard time backing down especially if it's a good idea to back down you know? <laughs> so yeah we had a little bit of scuffle, a few scuffles okay. a few squabbles and then in one version it talked about a huge boy band covering a, your song One Direction yeah but it, okay, so that's the the only you, or is that only you? No, that's or the song. Only you is the song that we did with the members of the One guys. Direction band after One Direction covered Teenage Dirtbag Live. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you caught wind that they covered a song. That's correct. Yeah, and we we got in touch, and we, uh, you know, we had drummer and I are friends, Josh Devine and Sandy Beals, the bass player. We're all buddies, so we found it a little sort of side project and did a whole bunch of songs. We haven't released them yet, but one of them is only you. Oh, that's great. And we did put that one out, yeah. Um, so let's move into more, I guess, modern day. You guys have a 20-year anniversary coming up. That's right. We are, uh, from what I understand, I'm having a hard time verifying this, but it seems to be the case that Sony Music have lost the multi-track masters to our first album. They were on an older format. They needed to be converted back then. I sent out four copies of the of the master tapes to different mixing engineers and never got them back. So if Sony hasn't converted them to an appropriate modern format, then they're probably disintegrated. Right. Uh, and I've had a hard time getting an answer on that. Um, so we are re-recording from scratch our first album. I have the second to last generation of master tapes. They're incomplete. They're missing some guitars, a lot of vocals. But the drums and the bass and uh, a lot of the guitars and the original click track tempos and percussion and everything is all there. Mm -hmm. So we are using that as a template on which to build new versions. And we are also 
unfortunately discovered on some of my demo cassettes from over the years another like 10 songs that sound like they belong on album one mm -hmm. so it's going to be a 20 song album in the fall of 2020 on the 20th anniversary now do you have to get back in bed with sony nope. for this no okay our right to re-record has long since been in place okay and is one of these um you were mentioning how you had you played in the car driving to work and sing out loud is any of that going to make one of those going to make the maybe <laughs> we're not I, sure yet we're still curating okay so, you know there's a lot of stuff I mean, that stuff's got to be great I, I think sometimes I, it's great sometimes it's just like what were you doing you know but it's interesting I just think I think music nerds to get a glimpse of the process you know even if it's bad it's good but I, I understand from your point of view it's like when it's bad coming from me right <laughs> Matt, Matthew our bass player now who's sort of like my, my partner in crime on this whole thing um he listened to an early, like sort of circa '97 rehearsal tape of the first incarnation of of musicians playing these songs, mm -hmm. and he goes, "You guys were a really good band from Long Island back then." <laughs> I thought, okay, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> it's too bad you couldn't find like the earliest incarnation. You can almost you can almost create a song like start it at its demo you know work you know makes it to its second demo so it is you know a four minute song but you get almost the history of the song within that that would be song. an interesting that's an interesting little project sure the the evolution of an idea yeah that's what you're talking about essentially um so i wrap things up with the same five questions that everybody gets sure so let's do that question number one is if your home is burning your loved ones are safe what do you go back and get guitars just your, your guitars guitars 100%, 100 million percent guitars, guitars, guitars. <laughs> You're not the only one who's answered that, right? Yeah. Question number two is, if I was at liberty to give you a check for a million dollars to any charity, any one charity, who would you give it to? Oh, wow. Interesting question. Um, you know, with the new 501c rules and super PACs, arguably a worthwhile investment in our democracy would be anyone who's going to defeat Donald Trump. So I would have to think about that. It would okay. be either suicide prevention, ASPCA, or get Donald Trump in jail. <laughs> Question number three is, what would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates? Man, I am a hardcore atheist, so that's a tough one. <laughs> Probably um, All This Time by Sting, which is a sort of atheist yeah, totally. anthem. Funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, the reverse of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell for you. I, you know, I don't like to say what kind of music I don't like, but, oh, boy. Stuck be, on repeat in hell? I mean, really, anything stuck on repeat in hell would be hellish, but... Yeah, that's tough. Um, probably the Natalie Imbruglia version of Torn. <laughs> is that a cover? It is a cover, yeah, I believe it is, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, I, it's not because I don't like her. I think she's exceptionally talented. Um... It's just there's something about that recording that just gets gets on my nerves. I don't know I don't know how else to say okay. that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Last question is uh, best live performance you've witnessed, and this is best put into words by another guest of mine. It's when he said when he saw Jane's addiction, it was like going to church. Like a right. Um, I saw an Irish band called The Frames play in the Mercury Lounge in 
sometime in the early December, I believe, or 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 maybe even October of 2001, right before we went on tour in the UK, and that was otherworldly. That oh, was so what, surreal. What, I mean, this in this uh, there. Uh, they, is this something you happened upon? No, I, I was, somebody introduced me to the frames in a studio in Abbey Road. I first heard the frames in Abbey Road Room 2. And somebody, uh, the engineer there played me uh, their record. And I immediately looked them up and found out where they were playing. And they were playing the Mercury Lounge. And I went and just tried old school, dynamic, indie noise rock band with melodies and sort of soaring Irish harmonies and things and just really there's nothing like that band like the, the frames are incredible they played a song that night called um, Santa Maria uh, which is on a, a record they have called uh, For the Birds okay. and I highly recommend it there's a, there is no, there's no better example of dynamics in a recording Steve Albini did it he recorded the record and dynamics like truly it ends in an like apocalyptic cacophony but it begins in this absolutely gorgeous melody sort of drone right yeah that's a good one I gotta yeah, check it out yeah check it out for yeah. sure well, Brendan, thanks for sitting down. It was a pleasure. Uh, Thank you, man. Pleasure meeting you. That was fun. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Big thank you to Weedus Mastermind, Brendan B. Brown. was very happy that podcast came to be. I had known of Brendan for a long time through mutual friends and always had him in mind for the show, so it was a thrill to have it all come to fruition. You can keep up with Weedus on their website, Weedus.com, and social channels, and catch them live on tour in the U.S. until early April. And for our overseas listeners, they'll be in the U.K. mid-April through early June. As for the podcast, as always, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so visit and follow us there. And give us some love on iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave us a comment. Look for us next Tuesday with an all-new episode featuring a guitarist whose band's debut album in 1992 sold 5 million units to date. Okay, episode 48 has come and gone. Good night, Cleveland.